If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalms once again, our last week studying this section of the Psalms together. Um, so we're going to be studying Psalms 127 and Psalm 133. They're both small, um, both, both very short, so don't get too worried. Um, we'll be studying Psalm 127 first and then flip a page and look at 133. But they both kind of follow a similar thematic um, idea, and I think that'll be very clear once we get into the Word. Um, so the title of the message today, I don't really bring a lot of attention to the titles, but I wanted to, uh, just because that sounds kind of good, doesn't it? United Saints, it makes you think of United States, but I didn't need to make that connection for y'all. I know y'all are smarter than that. But I, I w- was going to start out our talk by giving y'all some assurance or just making a disclaimer, um, because I, I, I know with a title like United Saints, um, our minds can think politics, right? And we're in the political season. Super Tuesday is coming up. Everybody's excited about that, I know. Um, but I'm more excited about right now, so we won't get into Super Tuesday just yet. Um, but I know with a title like United Saints, you just start thinking politics, and of course you do, right? Because that's just what, all we, what we think about um, in, in, in today, especially this time of year and, and, and for this year. Um, but I was going to start this deal by assuring you that this sermon was not about politics. It's, it's not political at all, but that really would be a lie, so I don't want to lie. Um, but don't worry, um, it, it, you know, y'all sit through political sermons um, every single week, really. Um, every church that comes together to, to, to study the Scripture, um, really, it's unavoidably political because Jesus Christ doesn't, uh, does, Jesus Christ doesn't claim to be just uh, a God that we worship in a building once a week, but uh, he's unashamed, um, and the Scriptures are unashamed to declare him as the king over all of creation, right? So that's higher than a president. It's higher than any um, government system on earth that his kingdom, his government um, has no end to it and is supreme and sovereign over every single domain and kingdom of man. So every sermon, every gathering is political because we celebrate and we honor and we sing to the king of the universe whom we say we're going to give allegiance to above and beyond anybody on this planet, whether we agree or disagree with them. Uh, Of course, we've been singing already uh, about the king of glory. We've been singing that he is worthy of our praise, of our allegiance, right? So that's very politically charged if you really think about it. Um, and, And our faith is not just confined to places like this, on days like this, but Christianity calls for allegiance to God, and that supersedes every area of our life. Uh, Psalms 47 tells us that God is the king, not just a king, but the king over all the earth, not just those that honor him or those that want to serve him or want to, to see him as their king, but he is the king over all the earth. And of course, our only fitting response should be and, and, and has to be to sing praises to him. And of course, as Christians, as Christians under the king, knowing that we serve a higher king, knowing that we're going to a different and better place one day, Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship is in heaven, right? Not saying that you should disrespect your citizenship on earth of the country that wherever, wherever you've been placed by God, but our citizenship, our true allegiance, our, uh, our, our complete and full devotion, dedication is not just to some kingdom or government on earth. It's to the kingdom of heaven where we await our Savior, Jesus Christ, to come and unite us to him one day. But, but don't worry, today's message isn't really that political but it is deeply personal. Uh, this isn't a call to any political agenda as we would measure things as Americans, but, it, but it is a call to the agenda of the kingdom of God. Now, this message skews a little more insider focus than our morning services usually do, but I think there's something here for everybody still yet. 
We've been studying um, a series of psalms. Psalms, of course, and are the ancient songs sang by Israel um, in different settings, in different places in, in their day and age. Uh, they would sing in the temple. They would sing in their homes. They would sing in parades, and they would read these as confessions and as creeds. Um, but the, the book of Psalms is really a book of hymns that were written and sang all long ago that continue to inspire our songs and our hymns and our worship songs to this day. Um, but we've spent a few weeks in a very specific section of the psalms, um, uh, from Psalms 120 to Psalms 134, um, there's a subheading over those psalms, and most of your Bibles and each psalm actually has this same heading. Um, these are called Songs of Ascent. Songs of Ascent. And, and these songs were saying as the people made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God as a united nation under Him, uh, they would sing these songs as they would make their pilgrimage, as they would make their journey from their homes to Jerusalem. And, and they're called Ascent. Uh, songs, because no matter what direction you came to Jerusalem from, from the south, east, north, or west, you would always be ascending a mountain. Um, and, and we talked last week about the crowds of people, hundreds of thousands that would gather and would ascend this mountain, and the traffic that would that would or, that would accumulate as they would literally wait to enter through a single gate and ascend the Temple Mount to make their sacrifice and pay their visit to the Temple of God. That they would ascend this mountain often called Zion. And, and we've been studying these psalms. And today we're going to wrap up this study with a look at two of them. that really fit together. And really all of them share a, a cohesive theme. But these two really teach us a lot. Um, so the setup is all the psalms are about the temple. About worshiping in the temple. The joy found by worshiping in the temple. The peace and strength that comes from the community around the temple and around their faith. A few of them, though, a few of them stand out um, because more than just songs that you sang to just, you know, to praise and worship, um, these particular ones stand out as confessions, as resolutions, as vows, and especially 127 and 133. These psalms stand out as sorts of resolutions, as, as you're singing, you're also making a commitment. They affirm one's commitment to the community that God is building. And as they would sing these psalms, as they would gather for worship, it was also a way of confessing their faith and resolving and vowing together as a community, hey, God is building something and we're a part of it and we want to make sure we're faithful and we're true to this calling because this is everything, not just to us, but everything to the future of our planet and to the future of what God is building. Now, that seems pretty high stakes, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk about how clearly their commitment was not in vain. Those who attended the temple and really the Jews as a whole understood that the gravity, the gravity of what was being built was so much bigger than what they could even comprehend. Uh, remember, the temple in Israel and the entire purpose and place of this nation was rooted in a promise that God made to a fallen world, a world that had disconnected from him, a world that had drifted from him, a world that had scattered from him. God started over with one man called Abraham. He was a wanderer. He was a Hebrew. But God promised Abraham that he would, through him, bless the nations and bring the whole world back under the knowledge of the one true God. God chose Abraham's grandson, Jacob, to start this nation. And God changed Jacob's name to Israel and that was the way the nation got started and the ball got rolling. The idea that Israel was, that was, was building towards something and that their faithfulness to God was building towards something bigger than they could ever touch or see themselves, but they were looking into a future where all the world would come to know God through their commitment and through God's promise He was fulfilling through them. 
And again, people would look at the Jews in the ancient world and think they were crazy because they thought so highly of themselves. They thought so highly of their God and they were so arrogant, they were so narrow-minded to suggest that their commitment and their God was somehow going to bring the whole world under the same faith. One day, they thought that was crazy, but the Jews understood how serious this promise and this mission was. They understood that faithfulness to God and His community were essential to seeing the fulfillment of these promises that God had made to Abraham, to Jacob, to all their ancestors. Israel, the temple, it was just the beginning and it was on their shoulders to carry this promise and carry this this thing forward to future generations to know the God of Jacob for the world to come to know the true King of all the earth. Now, I know that when we hear this kind of stuff, our eyes kind of glaze over because, of course, a church teaching the Bible would say that it was that big of a deal and the stakes were that high, and, of course, the Jews had to take it serious because, of course, a preacher would say that. But I I just want to remind you what we believe. Christians believe. The New Testament teaches. The last 2,000 years of history suggests that the hunch the ancient Jews had, their dedication that they had, was absolutely from God and was not in vain at all. Because all these years later, just think about this. Think about the gravity of the statement you're about to read. All these years later, two billion people on earth worship a Jewish man. Two billion people from all corners of the earth worship a Jewish man who was crucified And we believe, Christians, we believe this, right? The Bible teaches us, but we believe this. And two billion people like us right now on the planet today, secret and private, some in public, big, small, whatever you want to think about, however you want to imagine it, we're a part of a two billion strong group that believe the Jewish man was an incarnation, the incarnation of the one and only God. And we have gotten here today because a group of people all those years ago, they realized how important their faithfulness was. Isn't that wild? I mean, something that tells me this is more than just the ancient Jews willing this into existence. You know why? You know what's even more telling? Israel, as a whole, didn't accept or recognize Jesus as the Messiah when he showed up. So the people that were waiting for him, fast forward in history a few hundred years, when he came, the nation that he came to said, no thanks. The nation that he came to as a whole colluded with Rome to crucify him. Yet a faithful few Jewish followers continued to believe, carried the same testimony forward, carried that torch forward, fanned the flame forward, and they claimed that Jesus rose from the dead, and their testimony of his resurrection resulted in them being called criminals. Many were killed. Many fled from Israel seeking refuge around the world, but while they ran, they spread the message of the Jewish man who was the one true God made flesh, who was was dead and rose again. And over time, the whole world started paying attention. And 2,000 years later, Jesus Christ is heralded as the Savior of the world by people all over the world. His teaching changed the world undeniably. So I think the idea that the ancient Jews believed the ancient Jewish believers had, their faithfulness to the temple, it can't be passed over as just unnecessary religious devotion, especially by believers. Because clearly their faithfulness to to God laid the groundwork for the prophet 
that pointed to a Messiah and set the stage for Jesus to walk onto the pages of history and claim that he had come to fulfill what had been started. To build a church that knows no bounds. A gathering that is not restricted to one city like the temple, but is all over the face of the earth. A church that would be more about bodies than buildings, but still carry the same idea as a gathering for God's people to worship, a community for God's people to work together for the kingdom that is coming. So I say all that, even though we're a different generation, even though it's a different era, it's still the same God under the same heaven, building towards the same kingdom. Do you hear that? Even though it's all different, right? And the world has changed so much in all these years, we're still under the same God. We're still under the same heaven, and we're still building towards the same kingdom. God's people are still called together into community. And the two passages of Scripture that we're looking at today are so important for these causes, to our calls, to us because they're all about the people of God confessing, committing, vowing to continue to fan this flame, wave the flag, continue to come together for this kingdom purpose. So we're going to read these two, and I think it'll be self-evident when we're going through this and where we're going with this, but we'll break down what God's Word is saying to us, His church, His community, His people, placed on earth to build and work towards His coming kingdom. Now, Psalm 127 deals with both the faith community and the family unit. So we're just going to read the first two verses of it. Um, and, and then we'll be looking at the next one in just a minute. Both of these psalms, both of these psalms deal with the quality of the faith community and the condition of God's household, the health of God's household. Not the house, the building, but the household, the family. The quality and the condition, particularly Psalms 127, speaks to how it can grow. And then Psalms 133 speaks to how it can last. So I think any church, any community of God's people in any different era of the world should pay attention to this because, listen, 3,000 years ago when this was written and when they were confessing this and they were believing this, it worked for them, right? We're here today because they took serious the promise of how can we grow as God's family, how can we last as God's family. They took it serious. And we're here today because people took these promises and these, these, these truths serious and they followed them. As God's word. With that being said, the first two verses of 127, you've heard these before. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows or anxiety, for so he gives his beloved sleep. So you have this, this, this confession of Unless God's the one that's doing it, unless we're doing it God's way, that's really what is trying to be said here. Unless it's being done God's way, there's not actually going to be any progress. And if we try our best to do it our way, regardless how late we stay up and how early we rise up, we're never going to get any rest because we're never going to do it right. That's pretty poignant, pretty convicting, just saying that without even talking about what is right and what is wrong. Now, in, 20, in 127, when it speaks of building, it's not literally constructing a building. The building's already been built. The temple was built hundreds of years before this. This is not about building the house as a building, but building up, growing the community. And, and hear this. Don't just think about growth in terms of having more people, but becoming better people. 
This isn't just about having more people somehow fill the temple courtyard. It's about becoming better people, making the community a stronger, healthier people. So that's pretty clear, right? But it's easy to get confused there, so I wanted to break, make that clear. Now, we're not talking about roles here, right? This is not about how many people are on the roll. We're talking about souls, right? Now, what brings growth is directly tied to what sustains a long-term healthy community, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. But I want to demonstrate something for you in a minute. I want to talk about how a common misconception and dangerous misstep can, 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 can come into the church when we talk about growth. You see, when it comes to building up God's house, when it comes to building up God's house, there's a difference between growing and filling. There's a difference between growing God's house and filling God's house. This is important because we think often uh, we're wired professionally, academically, economically in our worlds today. We hear building up, we hear growing, and we think numbers, right? We think dollar signs. We think bodies that you can count. We think quantity, not quality, right? That's just how we're wired to think. And, and, and heck, doesn't, mind, doesn't matter the condition. As long as the counter goes up, that's what we're after, right? But, but not so. See, here's the thing. God's house is built up around and with people, right? We're not sheep and we're not coins. So you can count sheep and you can count coins, but God is interested in doing more than just counting people because he cares for people, right? Listen, if you're not a Christian, this is so important to communicate clearly. You're someone for whom Christ died. Every one of you, everybody on the planet is somebody for whom Christ died. God is inviting us all to play a role in his story in history. You're more than a number to him. You're more than just a counter that goes up or down. You are a person he wants rooted and grounded and built up as a member of his kingdom. You're more than a number on a roll. You're a child in his family. We started looking at these psalms a few weeks ago from a general place where there were people coming to Israel looking for hope. But they were hoping there was more than just hope for them. They were looking for help from God. See, coming to God, uh, not in fear of being rejected, but in confidence that he accepts us as we are and promises to help us and achieve, help us to achieve and overcome our, our challenges. Whether it's facing the shadow of failure under some weakness or facing some kind of fear, God wants to help everybody. So if you're not a Christian and you hear growth and you wonder, hey, am I just a number that God wants to see go up on, you know, God wants to see a chart go up. No, you're a person that God wants to see involved. God wants to see finding help and finding strength and overcoming their weaknesses through his family in his kingdom. This is all about reconciliation with our Creator, coming to know our Heavenly Father. This is an invitation to be more than just a number, to be a member of God's family, to be a child of God. See, God wants every person, each and every person to know that they have a place, they have a role, they have a significant part in what He's doing in the kingdom He is building. Now leave the screen where it is. I got a little demonstration to make for you. I don't do this often, and I really don't know what I'm doing when it comes to the stuff I'm about to talk about. But just pretend I didn't say that, and maybe I'll actually learn to teach, teach you something. Now, think of God's house as this pot, this vessel, right? Now, what is this pot for? What, what do you do with this? You put seeds in it, right? All this pot can do 
All this vessel can do is hold seeds. Nothing special about the pot. I mean, I don't know who made it. I don't want to insult them, but it was probably made in China. That might not be a good thing. <laughs> but I got some seeds, so all this thing is for is for putting seeds in, right? But if I just fill this thing up with seeds, does that do any good? If I just fill this thing up with seeds, like, I'm, and I'm just going to let y'all see that I put some seeds in here. I, don't, I didn't buy that many seeds. I don't want to waste them because I might actually plant these. I'm not much of a botanist. but See, all, all I did was put seeds in there. Does that do any good? I filled it up. I mean, I could buy 15 packs of these or bigger seeds, and I could fill this thing up. But are those seeds going to ever amount to anything? Are they just seeds in a pot, Right? And I mean, and I'm not big on flowers, but you know, if, I, if you're a botan, if you love flowers, if, you know, you don't want to just see a seed just dance around and toss around and, and bounce around in a cup, do you? So you have an interest in seeing a seed grow into something and mattering for something and being admired and being useful and actually having a difference in somebody's life. But see, if we're just into filling up vessels with seeds, it actually doesn't mean anything or doesn't do anything. And it might actually, you know, you might walk by it one day and say, well, that, that, that thing is full. But then some bird's going to fly by and pick it up and take it somewhere else. Or the wind's going to blow and it's going to go find another pot to be put in or it's going to fall on the ground and somebody else is going to pick it up and it might go in another vessel and it might fill up another vessel, but the vessel isn't doing anything for it. Right? See, if we just take seeds and we put them in a vessel, if we just pour them into a vessel without any personal regard, without any potential or possible good being done, without being planted... It's just a waste. See, God is not concerned nor impressed with full vessels. I mean, He owns everything, right? He's got angels flying around the throne all the time, right? Worshiping Him. He's not impressed when He sees a vessel full. Right? Wow, they're full. He's not. He's interested in full hearts. Ephesians 3, verse 17 tells us, that God's will is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, being rooted and grounded, planted in his love. Now that word your in blue, that's not your as in singular, that's your as in plural. That in our translation, it would be y'all's hearts, right? That God, he, God's talking about the whole here, not just the one. He cares about the one, but he's looking at you as a part of a bigger family. See, the way to fill, the way to a full heart it's for you, for all of us to be planted, right? Planted in the vessel. Now, I've got some more seeds. I don't know what I'm doing. Now, I'm not going to ruin a bunch of seeds here. But, see, I've got another vessel here. And it's got some soil in it, right? And see, when I take the seeds and I put them in the vessel and I plant them with a little water and a little sunlight, the back of that little seed packet tells me within a couple weeks I'm going to have a two-foot flower. Now, if I filled this thing up with those seeds, it wouldn't do any good because they're not all going to take root. But because I actually planted the seeds in the soil and I'm actually going to take care of these seeds, I can actually see something good come out of those seeds. That's what God's will for His church is. Seeing us, because we're seeds, right? Planted in his community. 
See, this is about this is kind of like renting a house. You're never going to own it. This is like buying it. See, when you rent, you're just kind of there, right? And even if you move out, you get no value to take with you. But when you bought, you actually have an investment. You actually have some equity. You have some permanence. Here's what Ephesians tells us. That you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints. So a part of something. What is the breadth, the length, height, and the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled and with all the fullness of God. So here the idea of being filled. So God's, God's concerned about our hearts, right? He goes on to say this next chapter. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness or deceitful schemes. Here's what that means. So often seeds go or move around from vessel to vessel. And they never can find where they feel like home. Because, well, they believe this now, and I want to go over there because they believe something better, and I've really got a hold of that, and that doctrine is just so, so speaking to me. Or that guy's really crap, that guy's really charismatic. He's really cunning. Or to be honest, there's some schemes out there that get people roped up that aren't really God's will at all. Verse 15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up. In every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint is equipped. So the idea of joined and held together, that we, we're actually a, a unit that is inseparable. Now, when we're all planted together alongside one another, we realize that to grow, we're going to all have to rely on each other. We're going to all have to rely on what we have in common. See, these seeds planted together know that while they may all be different, their roots are in the same ground, and their roots don't notice or regard the differences in the body, right? But they have the same ground, and their roots need the same nutrients, and they all have a common need for the same things to keep them healthy. So there's a unification that is important, right? With that in mind, listen to Psalms 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren or brothers and sisters to dwell together in what? Unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, the guy who started all this. Running down on the edge of his garments, it's like the dew of Hermon or Sinai. Descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. So here's what very, is very important from that scripture. When the household dwells together in unity, the blessing of the house can be fully realized. But if there is no unity, the blessing goes unrealized. See, as a church, unity is so imperative to building up God's household to create a place where everyone can benefit. Not just from God, but from each other, right? Because we can find benefit, but we also find a way to contribute. Now, I'm no biologist, y'all can tell, right? And I'm no botanist, but I know enough about this to keep this analogy going for a little bit longer. In nature, there are two distinct phenomena that can occur between not just common species, but across the domains of plants, animals, and so forth. There are subcategories, but I don't want to get too, general, too specific here. In nature, across different environments and different ecosystems, there are relationships that can be described between animals and plants, specifically different plants. You can describe them as either mutualistic or parasitic. 
Now, you can go deeper and talk about symbiosis and cooperation and exploitation. This isn't biology class. Thank God it's not. This is about how some plants and some species benefit from each other through their natural proximity and how they cooperate in their vessel. And there also are ways they can be a detriment to each other. What do you think God's will for his church is? Now, I'll go ahead and give you a hint. It's not parasitic, even though that happens in a lot of churches. Amen? <laughs> I'm going to laugh, but unless you've been a parasite before, and maybe you shouldn't laugh, you should do something about it. It's not to be parasitic. There's no gray area, though. There's no in between. God has designed his household to be connected, not simply tolerating each other, and especially not isolating from each other, but connected and unified with one another. Now, in today's modern world, the church has gotten so specialized, and often we try to circumvent the difficulty in cooperating by just getting around people that we like and that we're alike and that we're the same age as and the same interest in. I don't think God really smiles upon that because there's no specialization in heaven. Revelation 7 gives us a preview that John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, all tribes, all tongues, all people, all languages, and they were all standing before the throne in the same place. So God expects that we get a head start on earth, don't you think? God likes diversity because it requires more and more direct and intentional cooperation. You can run from it now, but you can't run from it forever. The solution isn't found in absolving any differences, but in absorbing and respecting the differences in the name of our same God so that we can all grow, so that we all can cooperate and benefit each other, a community that grows when each member considers what they have in common. A novel idea, right? And unites around it. See, the differences in us and plants is that we can jump around and go wherever we want to go. Plants can't. But does that mean we have it better off or that somehow we grow more? I don't think so. So maybe the point to brag or a distinction, maybe it's not a point to brag or a distinction to lean so heavily on, maybe we need to learn from the plants and the seeds. Maybe we should go to our planter and our creator and our king and say to him as his church, as members of Risen Church, and say, God, you've placed me and you planted me, and I respect that, and I'm thankful for that, and your will is for me to grow up and benefit all those around me, and I want to grow up to be a church for kingdom good and for your glory. Again, what is the through line over the last 2,000 years? I'll tell you what it's not. The through line over the last 2,000 years has not been any 21st century or 20th century styles or traditions. The through line over the last 2,000 years is not American ideals or American politics or American culture. It's not industrial age socialist ideas. It's not enlightened capitalist ideas. It's not Republicans. It's not Democrats. Those are not the ideas that have held us together. Not the charismatic ideas, the Pentecostal, the Baptist, the Puritanical. Not even the Reformed traditions hold us together because the through line is older than 19, 18, 16, even 1500. The through line predates Western civilization, predates democracy, even predates the church. When a small group of strange monotheist Jewish people believed in one God and believed that one God was calling everybody to Him. 
And their faithfulness to His house could change the world. Representing God's kingdom from before and beyond the earth, what if we united around this idea? What if we were defined around that cause, how it was fully realized through Jesus and how God made flesh a Savior on a cross, changed everything? What if? Before we leave, i got to share something with you. Creation was started in a garden. Every creature was united with God. And we know how all that fell apart. But did you know that creation was saved in a garden? And I'm not talking about the garden that Jesus was crucified in or the garden that he was buried in and rose up from. Those were gardens too. I'm talking about the one that he went to the night before he died in the Mount of Olives where he prayed a prayer so powerful that it laid out a pathway for all of creation, all people to understand in full what it means to be saved and what it means to be Christian. That night in that garden, he prayed for his followers. He prayed for us. And I think after talking about God's household growing and building up God's kingdom, I think after talking about unity being the key, it would do us well to close by reading from that prayer that he prayed all those years ago that could change your life, that saved and could save once again the world. If you want to turn with me to John 17, I'm going to just read a few verses there, but you, don't, you can just listen if you'd like to. I wanted to put it in front of you instead of on a screen because I wanted you to go home and read this later because this prayer is so important. John 17, we're going to pick up in verse number 15. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to the words that he prayed. I do not pray that you take them, that's the church, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil or the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So Jesus outlines our purpose, doesn't he? God, I don't want you to remove them, even though it's a rough place, going to be a rough place for all these years to come. Don't remove them, but I want you to position them, and I want you to direct them. I am sending them on a mission. Verse 19, and he says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by truth. Jesus says, I am setting my face, I am fixing my stance towards the world so that there will be no confusion as to what my mission was and that they might have no confusion over what their mission is. He set himself apart for God's use and he says that God wants to set us for the same use. So what we've learned so far is that God wants to build us up and unite us together so that we can make a kingdom difference. And what is a kingdom difference? Verse 19, Jesus says, Father, I want to sanctify myself for your purpose. I want to set myself apart for your purpose to make a difference for your kingdom. What did Jesus do? He died for the world. He so loved the world. He demonstrated God's love for the world. He set himself apart. He sanctified himself for God's use to show the world God's love. And he says for you and me, he wants the very same purpose for us. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also, you are commanded to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Listen, 
Christians, your destiny, your purpose, God's will for your life. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that often. God's will for your life. If you want to know what God's will, I don't know everything specifically, but I know one thing that's for everybody. God's will for your life, your purpose, your destiny. The Bible is clear on this. God's will for your life is that you embrace your place in His family, to be set apart for His heavenly kingdom, to join His earthly community, marveling at His love and worship, learning to love His people in fellowship, and taking that love to all people on a mission. That is God's will for every one of us. It doesn't just stay internal. The goal is to be sent. People ask me all the time, is it, does a Christian have to go to church? I'm not going to go into that. Here's what I do know, though. A Christian has to go to the world and take God's love to them. That's biblical. And the only way I see a Christian going is a Christian that worships and that learns and that gets a preparation for it. But every one of us has an obligation to take this love to the world. Listen, I'm an introvert, but this is God's will for my life. We would not be here had those on the periphery of this garden not gotten this. Church history is not about buildings, but it's about bodies that loved one another. What changed the world was not simply persuasive environments, though they're important. But it was powerful relationships, disciples, Christ followers, being disciples, making disciples by loving one another. This is how we can be united with God. This is how we can help unite a lost world back to God. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray these for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who he's praying for? You. I don't just pray for the 12 guys outside the garden. I'm praying for the ones that are coming down the line that they may be, what is it? One. As you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, united in, in, in God, that the world may believe that you sent me. But if we're not united, the world's not going to believe. That's what, that's what that says. This is how the world will recognize God in us and God through us. If we're not united around this, we're wasting our time. We can have awesome services and we can be right and we can be holy, but if we're not united around both vision and mission, we fail our predecessors, we fail the next generation, and we fail the kingdom of God. In America, we often talk about what's at stake. There is a lot at stake this year but we don't even know the half of what's at stake eternally. By our devotion to this mission, our unity to God and to each other, we can change the world. We can be built up and grow as believers and as a body. Once more, he says, the glory you gave to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you love me. What is this all about? So the world might know. Why is it so important that God builds the house the way He wants it built? Why is it so important that we grow? Why is it so important that we're united? Because the world is at stake. What, require, what this requires from all of us beyond these walls, what this requires from us as Christians in a world that is decidedly not Christian. Jesus admitted earlier in this prayer, the world hated Him, it's going to hate us. 
But His mission for us into the world didn't waver. It didn't waver for Himself. You know why Jesus was able, able to overcome hatred and rejection and was able to love and serve anybody anyway? Because He never let views get in the way of views. Even though He didn't agree with them, even though His views were superior and they rejected Him, He still loved them because they still needed Him. Jesus chose sacrifice instead of satisfaction. Even though He was right and they were wrong, He didn't let a view get in the way of you. A lot of things get in the way of us uniting together around this central mission. Some of us, we just don't think it's important. Others of us, we can't let surface little things not bother us so long that we can't get past it. We as a church have made a big priority in creating environments wherein people can be persuaded, but that's not going to cut it if we're going to change our world. Because the majority of our world, they're never going to be in here. They're out there. And it's easy to push this off on somebody else, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. I've planted you and purposed you for this. The church is equipping you. You don't want to miss this. But Psalm 127 and Psalm 133 make it very clear. The condition in here is directly tied to our mission out there. And this isn't just for risen church, this is for every church. And maybe this seems impossible, maybe the world, people are just too different. But I believe as we pray for things to be done on earth as they are in heaven, if we put use over views, I don't see how this can't be realized if we take serious what God has given us. One of the pastors of the largest churches in America, his church, he, he, he presides over, over 30,000 people on any given Sunday through their different campuses. He's adamant while their services are great, their day-to-day service in the world is greater, and that's why they reach people. That's why the church at large continues to grow. Any church that wants to grow rather than just be full, when we the people, as united saints of God's kingdom, agree on vision and on mission, when, you, when we unite around our love for God, rally and around His name, united in our love for each other and a love for every other person. But until we do that, we're just seeds in a vessel. We need to be planted. We need to be united. We need to do what Jesus has called us to do for the sake of the world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this clear and convicting word. Lord, often I just think about me and me and me, and, and, and I don't really think about how my role is as important to, as everybody else's. But Father, your prayer for us is that we would be united. Your prayer for us is that we might would be joined together and rooted and grounded and, and come up as a community that understands how serious and what's at stake. Father, I, I want to encourage everybody here today that every one of them matters to you and every one of them a seed you want to plant in your kingdom and you want to see them come to, to know you and, and grow into the person they've been always been destined to be. Father, I pray you would encourage every one of us to, to tip, step aside from our views and look around at all the yous. Look outside at all the use and realize what is the most important thing, which is uniting together around this mission, around this vision. To go into the world and love like you've loved us.
making a difference like you have made a difference. Father, in this time of invitation, we give you our hearts. Maybe somebody wants to come in a public way and surrender before you and say, my heart is yours. But for the rest of us, Father, as we sing, let us not just sing in word, but let us sing in our hearts and mean what we sing as a confession, as a vow to your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.